Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown, and help you to change your direction. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, The the first question I always ask, so what is the hardest change that you've been through in your life? Um, Well, I know that um, Polly, who you had on a few weeks ago, was the one who recommended me for this um, uh, podcast. And I... um, uh, I was very much struck by her opening comment and was thinking, well, mine's going to be exactly the same, which is, gosh, how do you choose you could <laughs> go for? I'll see, you know, obviously as well, there's, you know, I think we spend a lot of time looking for straight lines in life, whether or not, and um, so finding one thing that sort of leads on to lots of others. Anyway, uh, never mind my uh, existential ramblings as I was trying to answer your question. Uh, I've actually uh, gone for uh episode gosh way back in 1998 which seems like a long time ago where um uh i packed up my bags and and then my family packed up their bags and came came out too and we went to live and work in poland uh in warsaw which is a sort of massive massive change for all of us and led on to lots of other interesting things happening from from there so what why poland and particularly at that time that's a good question (laughs) well i guess so so i'd been um interested in sort of politics for a long time and uh i kind of recognized i think that when all the changes happened in eastern europe in the the late 1980s 1989 all, all of that the berlin wall coming down that that was probably going to be the most significant thing that happened in my lifetime um uh, so I was particularly kind of interested in that. Um, and then there, there was also the kind of the, the the timing of it, you know, in terms of my own life, I was feeling a bit stuck in a rut. Um, I just turned 30 and, you know, was sort of wondering what the, what, what, what was the meaning of life? And what was I, what was I achieving? Was I, you know, sort of, I'd, I'd gone to, um, I'd, I'd moved to Norwich to, uh, university when I was 18 having grown up in a little village and market town and um hadn't kind of moved on from there since and so um uh, you know it was kind of like there, there was an exciting adventure to be had and I guess I also had the opportunity in that the job that I was doing was um uh they, they were looking for people to go and um, to, to work in these emerging markets as, as um as they're known in um, in Eastern Europe, so it all sort of came together, and um, an opportunity came up, and I thought uh, um, my wife at the time and I agreed that I should go for it, and um, it sort of followed on from there, really. So, so what I'm interested to know what Poland was like at that time. It, I mean, fascinating. I mean, it, it was the my my uh, most striking sort of recollection of, of of Warsaw in particular at that time was it was just full of builders cranes it was just every street seemed to have some kind of building activity going on um on it um and yet you could drive 
no more than five minutes out of the city into the countryside and, you, and people were you know farming with horses and carts it was um it was a pretty remarkable thing um and i've not been back to warsaw since since i left sort of 20 odd years ago and i'm sure it's very different now but it was you know at the time there was a real kind of um contrast i guess between between the kind of the the old stuff which was still there i mean you know the the building where I worked um, had a pretty terrifying sort of creaky lift um, that you had to get in, which was probably put in sometime in the 1960s. And um, and yet we were, you know, we'd go for a drink in a, in a bar at the top of a 40 storey um, um, tower block, you know, overlooking the whole kind of the of the sort of North European plane. It was just a remarkable contrast of different different experiences, really. We when we were researching the episode, obviously you, you said that you were struggling to cope with turning 30 and not feeling that you'd achieved what you should have done. I'm interested to know what you thought you should have achieved by the age of 30. It's a really good question looking back now, because, you know, even when I just said that just now, I was just thinking, well, Christ, by that, by that time, you know, I had a job, I had a career, I had a family that was fantastic. And, you know, what on earth was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, yeah, I mean, it is that it, it, it was, I think it was the kind of sense of, um, as I said, growing up in a tiny village, moving, spending my teenage years in a little market town, going from there to um, Norwich and then having a family very young and staying in Norwich and Norfolk and working there and doing the same job for 10 years. It was just that sense of... <sighs> Well, even actually, as one of my, as funnily enough, as my boss in the um, civil service a couple of years before, uh, actually came to me and said, "Look, Ed, if you're going to get out of this place, you need to do it soon." <laughs> it kind of, I think I don't know how much I don't know, I don't know if he ever realised how much damage he did to my life by saying that, but I definitely, I definitely took it on board, and I think you know it was, it was that kind of um, it was that kind of mentality. I think it was. Um, uh you know it, it was just that sense of i hadn't done anything kind of you know very adventurous or out of the box as it were you know sort of it was it was it was that sort of um it was that kind of mentality that, that led me down that that path it's um it reminds me i read something in uh, a book by by dan pink about how the statistics around people that make changes in their he calls them nine enders, you know, so when you're 19, 29, 39, 49, that's when you make yeah. make big changes or turn into turn into the next decade as you uh, you expect it to be this big change from one one you know one from your twenties to your thirties and things like that. So um and um I, I, I definitely I definitely think that was you know that was that was definitely a big part of kind of my thinking my mind at, at that time you know I, I look back on it now and I, I, as I say when you're older and you kind of see the, the the pattern of your life which obviously you don't have the advantage of when you're in your 20s um and you, th you think hey you know that was that was what a ridiculous thing to get hung up on but uh, but yeah I think that was a bit that was a big part of it so then you got bored of Poland and went to Romania <laughs> <laughs> well it, I mean it, it's 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 a funny I mean I, I think um actually what had happened was that, that Poland had kind of got bored of expats um so what you found when I went out there so so I'd been I, I my job when I 
finished university. Well, actually, my first job when I finished university was as a, was as a postman because uh, my wife, um, you know, when I, when I got to the end of three years of hard slave labor doing a degree, mainly involving sleeping, um, you know, I, I said, oh, I need a break. You know, I need a holiday. I need, you know, I can't go straight into work. And then a couple of kind of weeks of putting up with that, my, my wife said, look, I'm pregnant. Get out of the door and get a job. In fact, don't get out of the door and get a job. Here's one I've already found for you. So I so my, so my first um, uh, first sort of job uh, uh, was um, being a temporary postman. But then fortunately, the civil service came to my rescue. And uh, I went to work as a customs officer in uh, Great Yarmouth, which sounds very exciting, but wasn't because it was mainly just sort of shifting paper about. Um, and then the other half of... Um, customs and excise is the VAT uh, office, and uh, which I really, really enjoyed. I've, I've very much enjoyed being a tax inspector, which um, is not something many people admit to. Um, and the the point of that kind of ramble is that 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 time sort of through the 1990s, the countries of Eastern Europe were sort of all changing their tax systems because they all wanted to be part of the European Union. They were looking to, to adopt VAT systems and looking at their customs system, all that kind of stuff. So they were hungry for kind of knowledge about the way that we do tax in Western Europe. And so I uh, found this, this, this job over there, but at the same time discovered that the companies that were there, quite rightly actually, were saying to themselves, you know what, we've got the skills here. We don't need all these expats to come tell us how to do this stuff. We we know how to do it ourselves. So um, I found myself in a situation where um, the that there was quite a lot of pressure to kind of move away from employing expats. And then the other thing I found slowly over the course of a couple of years was that it didn't really suit me as a person, the kind of job. I mean, I, I always used to say... Um, that, that that sort of consultancy world that I'd moved into um, was kind of 50% your technical knowledge or whatever it was that you were that you were selling. Where you, you needed to know what you were talking about and 50% the sales skills that, that, that went with it. And of course, when you go to another country, they don't want or really need your technical skills because they can get that from really clever, bright, young graduates uh, in the in their own country what what they what they really want is this kind of sales skills and that was just the wrong balance for me as a person I didn't have that that ability to kind of to kind of go and do those things well uh, so it, it was a pretty tough two years and I uh, you're right I, I tried to sort of fix the problem by trying again in another country um, but I actually found one that was kind of where that was even more the case because it was even more kind of wild west or wild east if you like um in in romania it, it was a, it was a, it was a tough time personally because because you know i suppose the other thing about turning you know going, leaving your 20s behind is finding that you know you're not a master of the universe and there are things that you're not very good at is uh, <laughs> it's quite a difficult thing to to kind of come to terms with and i say when I, when i was reading about your time there and and the change that you made albeit yeah, you talk about how tough it was and uh, and everything that you went through. 
reading the story, it kind of felt like you found out who you really were by making that change. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it probably it was a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think as I mean, if I if I've kind of got a theme for a for a conversation, it's that you I, I don't think you ever really actually stop finding that out. You know, it's a it's a big old long process. But I, I found out a lot about myself. There was some fantastic stuff from it as well. You know, I, I can't I kind of wouldn't swap it, no matter how difficult it was um, for me and you know the 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 people closest to me I, I just had some amazing experiences really and, and and as you say really found out a lot about myself um and um and you know met some brilliant people as well you know it's it's stuff that's kind of um stuff that stayed with me ever ever, ever since that's you know certainly Romania I go back to regularly I have lots of friends out there um and and family too because I, I met my second wife there so you know lots of connections which i which i've retained and i still kind of love the the, the, the region so from from romania back to the small market town where you grew up what you you talk about your what was your upbringing like i mean your your dad was nearly 70 when you were born yeah that's the that's that's the kind of i suppose that's the sort of extraordinary thing about my my family story i mean you don't think about it at the time obviously when you're small you know it's just it's, it's just your dad um but I, I often think now we seem to every year there seems to be some kind of anniversary of either the first world war or the second world war and i hear lots of people you see on you know social media facebook or whatever people posting stories about their grandfather who fought in the second world war or was in the battle of britain or, or whatever you know my dad was born in 1897 he he did all four years of the first world war that's my dad not even my granddad you know it's just, yeah. just a kind of very strange thing to sort of um put your put, get your head around when you sort of from the outside but i mean at the time he was just my dad um and my upbringing in a way was um, I can't remember who wrote the book, but um, someone um, someone wrote a book about just how 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 kind of pleasant and was it Nick Hornby who wrote a book about it? it's a very normal and boring and nice upbringing. You know, I just it was great. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, great, great. You know, kicking kicking a ball around with my mates, going to a small village school. Everything everything was peaceful and, and fun. Um, and then it got, I mean, it got trickier in my teenage years, as I suspect it does for everybody. Um, with dad. Um, his age kind of catching up with him and, and moving into the town where, you know, I didn't really kind of know anybody and uh, changing schools, all the things that as, as well, that, you know, that goes with just teenage life, you know, so. Uh, um, and you, um, just to know, like, I, I think from, from reading and talking to people and having these conversations, you, you either become really like your parents or you go the other way. <laughs> Like, which do you think it is for you? Oh, what a great question! Um, I mean, part of—I mean, part of it, of course, is—and I suppose this is one of my lifetime regrets. I can't really answer that for my dad because I didn't mm. really know him well enough, you know. But by the time I was old enough to kind of look outside myself and be interested in his life, he was kind of too old and too ill to be able to sort of tell me really i mean he died when i was 17 but he was ill for quite a long time before that um 
I don't really have much to kind of gauge it against. Um, and, and, and of course, the funny thing is then you, you also kind of, um, you kind of build up this kind of hero figure, you know, in your mind, um, you know, that, uh, uh, that you can't possibly compete with and probably isn't accurate either. But um, uh, so I don't know about my, about my dad. Um, uh, Mum, uh, I, yeah, I mean, the, the older I get, the more I, I think to myself, oh, yeah. And then, uh, that's that's something mum says or mum does or <laughs> you know she's a she's a, a massive influence on my life obviously you know having kind of brought me up almost as a kind of single parent uh, and um uh yeah you know so and 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 you know and you kind of again go in both those teenage years where you kind of kick against everything that's that's um at home and anything to do with parents but um uh she was i mean is a remarkable woman um 90 years old still living on her own uh at home and um uh incredibly strong uh so i suspect well i'm sure i'm a blend of both of them but but i as i say as i say i get older i i kind of recognize more of my mum uh in me i do also wonder whether um you know, the, the more I get to know about her personality, I mean, she had she had sort of obviously big, the big influence on her life was the Second World War because she was living in London in a sort of comfortable kind of middle class um, setting. Um, and uh, then the war started and they had to um, relocate to, a, uh, to Lincolnshire. Um, and... Um, you know that that had a massive impact on on her uh for the rest of her life her, her opportunities and how the direction that her life would have taken and i you know one of the things that i look at uh, sort of uh, when i think about it is how you know the, the the two of us actually have kind of responded to those kind of big events and and, and the extent to which you kind of let that you know the, the, or the extent to which you're able to break away from it and change direction or whatever you know sort of so it's, it's it's quite interesting to kind of compare that the extent to which she feels even now as i say when she's 90 that that that, that was such a massive impact on her life that she wasn't able to kind of pull it back to what it might have been from there and um obviously we talk about change and so your father died when you were 17 and then you went to university got married and had a child and you were 21 <laughs> that must have yeah. been an incredibly uh um don't even know how to describe sort of fast changing <laughs> few years for you yeah there's probably it's probably just as well that i've never had therapy because i did probably someone would, <laughs> uh, would, would 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 draw some links between the speed that i let that all happen um yeah no i mean it, again it, well it was um um, I met someone when I was at university, um, and uh, we um, we actually decided you know, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't an accident. It was a it was a deliberate decision to have um, children. She's a couple of years older than me. Not that that really made a lot of difference. She's not massively older than me. Um, and uh, yeah, so so we. Uh, I was just. I like to tell people that I was twenty one 
uh, when Hannah, my daughter, was born. I was actually about three weeks away from being 22. So it's a bit of a stretch to say that I was still 21, but uh, but it is technically true. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it, it, so I sort of went from, as I, as I say, from spending three years um, mostly kind of sleeping through my uh, degree. I can't even claim to have been all kind of, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was definitely, oh my God, this is an amazing, <laughs> amazing opportunity just to stay in bed. And um, uh, surrounded by lots of my friends who were working very hard and um, getting much better jobs as a result afterwards. But um, uh, they, yeah, I um, I did a huge amount of growing up, you know, from, from I don't suppose, actually when I went to university when I was 18, um, I hadn't done the gap year thing or anything like that. We didn't have the money to allow me to do that. Um, I don't suppose I'd even cooked a meal when I went to university, and I was kind of thrown into this um, uh, into these student residences, kind of um, surrounded by a bunch of other eighteen-year-olds who all felt a lot more worldly wise than I was, and um, had to kind of cope uh, and do some very quick growing up and then you know which is probably as I say why I was quite keen to then get married and share, <laughs> share that burden again um, I'm not going to say that I married her because I wanted her to do my cooking and cleaning because that's definitely not true but um, but and it would be a massive disservice to Lisa as well um, but uh, uh, you know it, it, yeah it all happened pretty fast and um, um, and I mean well I mean you know again absolutely would not have changed the moment of it because it's um my daughter's amazing and and it was a fantastic experience as well you know some, some crazy times so talking of crazy times you then went into customs and then VAT <laughs> yeah like, like I said it, I mean it was well it was one of those situations where it was okay I need a job what can I do I'll apply for the civil service and I don't know if it's still like this but Back then, when you applied for the graduate scheme uh, for the civil service, you you identified where the location you wanted to be and the department that you wanted to work in. Um, and the most important thing to us at the time was to stay uh, somewhere in Norfolk. So I sort of I, I looked around and I, I thought, okay, uh, I'll I'll pick three departments that I know will have uh, an office in um, uh, in Norwich. So I've got a decent chance of working there. Um, one of which was the stationary office, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, one of which was the Minister of Agriculture, which is, I suppose, something else now. Um, uh, and the other was the, um, the DHSS, which is obviously now the DWP. Because, um, you know, they've all got lots of people working in Norfolk I'm bound to get a job amongst uh, those and they said and they replied to say thank you very much you're joining um customs and excise so, so I'd never I'd not heard I genuinely had not heard of customs excise absolutely no idea um what it was or what they did um and what I found when I started there in uh, the tail end of 1988 I suppose um it, the customs office in Great Yarmouth was was a uh, sort of brilliantly entertaining um, combination of um, people who who had been in the department for a long, long time uh, and were very 
kind of set in their ways and and used to working in particular ways um and uh, and a whole set of changes that were coming along um at the time that just meant that world was kind of rapidly disappearing um you know all the stuff so much of the stuff uh, that they were doing was 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 um being ditched either you know because of technology or because of changes like the single market and all this sort of stuff so you know the sort of the fantastic old stories that you'd hear about them sort of going onto boats and you know getting drunk with the captain and all of that sort of stuff was just was all kind of disappearing not stuff that i ever did i mean it was just i was doing paperwork um but it, as i say it was um one of those situations where you know uh fairly i mean within a couple of years they were they were sort of saying okay well we need to we need to lose people here we, we don't need as many people doing this as we used to um and they offered me the chance to go and work in the in the, in the vat office uh which i grabbed at and it just sounds when you say vat inspector it just sounds like it ought to be the most boring job in the world but um it really wasn't because i ended up doing um this um do, do, doing work around um checking up on um the the vat declarations the tax declarations made by um um businesses that that mainly trade in, in cash so you know um takeaways restaurants and all of this sort of stuff we were doing things like um um uh, you know we, we used to cover obs you know we <laughs> We'd sit in our cars outside these takeaways and, and count the number of people that were going in. And um, we had a little badge that we could flash at people if they challenged us who we were. And it was, oh, I felt like the Sweeney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the, the two, I think probably the two best compliments I've ever been given. One was um, uh, when when the boss came down, the regional boss came down um, one day and walked through our our bit of the office and we were all kind of sitting there in jeans and, and what have you with our feet up on the desk reading the paper or whatever waiting for our uh, work to start later on in the day and he mustered something about us looking like the regional crime squad and we were like yeah that's us <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, the other was uh, going to visit some guy with a, with a colleague a chip shop i think somewhere out on the coast and um i'd sort of chatted to him for a while and then invited myself to go look around the back into his storeroom and he said to my colleague does he think he's does he think he's colombo and i thought well, absolutely i do yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can see a raft of people uh, rushing to apply for a job as a vot inspector listening to this now <laughs> yeah i don't know if they i don't even know if they still do it because obviously you know they've obviously lost a lot of, of staff too and i mean gosh it's a long time since i was working there um uh, and I think you know they kind of focused a lot more on on the sort of really big corporate stuff with tax avoidance, which which I personally would find very dull. But um, but yeah, it was just it, it was just really kind of good fun, and I just learned so much as well. You know, you, you kind of work the 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 people that you're going and talking to, and that's you know mostly what I did. You know, maths was never really my strong point. So, so actually, just going and talking to people, 
um, was the best way to find out what they did. But, I, you know, we were going around vis visiting all these people that were basically small business owners all around Norfolk and talking to them about what they did. And it was just absolutely fascinating, really, really interesting. And, um you know, and I mean, you know, ninety percent of the time, obviously, they they were there was there was no problem. Um, they might make the odd mistake, but it wasn't. They weren't kind of squirreling away tens of thousands of pounds. Um, um, but then, when you get into the say, when we got into the sort of dealing with the with the businesses where it was more kind of, if you like, culturally uh, ingrained to uh, um, to hide away some of the uh, uh, the receipts, it was um, it got just got more more interesting, a lot more fun. Um, lots of stories that I probably shouldn't share <laughs> because, because people might be able to identify who I'd be talking about and that would be wrong. <laughs> so um, fast forwarding a little bit, you then went into politics. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's funny to say that to, to hear someone say oh, that I went into politics. I always I always flinch a bit when people say that I'm a I'm a politician. Um, what what happened? I mean, I, I was I was I was really interested i don't know where it came from but from a very young age uh, i was interested in in politics um um there was a point when when we did move into the to the sort of local market town when i when i was sort of 12 or so we actually moved uh into a house that was next door to a um, a liberal party local councillor and i suspect that was probably the the, the beginning of you know the, that was the moment of doom i think um i was very quickly drawn into a world of delivering leaflets and knocking on doors and and, and stuff and and i've uh, you know I've, I've often said that you know I, I would love to be able to say i was motivated by some great desire to sort of change the world or some affronted by something really bad that i'd seen that i wanted to correct but i genuinely think it as a a young teenager it was a choice between of hobbies between doing politics and doing train spotting you know it was i was fascinated by the numbers the patterns and you know and election results and all of that kind of stuff so i just got more and more drawn into it and, um, and then as i got older i got more and more interested in people and why they choose to do what they do uh, in that particular case how they vote and what motivates them and all that kind of stuff so it just became a kind of a bit of a lifetime obsession really and um, so I gone when I came back, when I kind of realized that the stuff that I was doing, working in Poland and Romania and Eastern Europe and what have you, wasn't me. Um, I wasn't very good at it. It wasn't making me happy. Um, I came back initially to, to study uh, in the UK and got sort of... Um, um, intercepted by an old friend of mine who was um, standing for parliament, um, who was looking for someone to go and work for him to kind of run his um, what he knew was going to be his last attempt. It was his third attempt to um, to win, um, and he knew it was going to be his last go. Um, uh, and you know, I was like, well, yeah, obviously, I'm 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 going to do that because I'd love to do it. I've wanted to do it for years, and um, you know, it's better than spending two years kind of studying <laughs> with a, with no obvious kind of point to it um so yes yeah, so i did that and um, that was um, norman lamb um sir norman lamb as he now is um and that and we uh that was the 2001 election campaign where 
where he did win. He he took the seat uh, from the Conservative and held it for nearly sort of twenty years after that. And as a as a a Lib Dem, and um, it was yeah, fantastic fun, and it and it kind of led into other things. I, I then went to work after that election. I went to work for 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 a number of years for the for the Lib Dem national campaigns team and and kind of never left it i stayed in campaigns and communications jobs after that um uh, as as my sort of career my paid employment and then in 2012 went back to work for norman and um and um then in 2017 was actually elected myself as a county councillor so that's the point at which i can't I can no longer deny that I am a politician if I'm actually an elected <laughs> councillor. So, uh, so that yeah, so that's the bit where I have to hold my hands up. But yeah, I, so so I'd had that sort of many years as a volunteer doing stuff as people do, you know. Then the huge privilege of kind of working, running uh, Norman's uh, election campaign, and then moving into the to the Lib Dem campaigns team. Everything, um, fantastic people, um, great fun um doing stuff that i loved um uh, you know developing some real skills and knowledge around that um and then having this chance as well to be to, to be a counselor myself you know so it's 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 um which is also fascinating so yeah so that's that's kind of been the thing really you know throughout throughout my life so so it's like well i, I go from i go from being a vat inspector to being a politician i must be you know sort of racking up what what, what are the other things maybe i should become an undertaker or something next <laughs> <laughs> i'm interested to think about so sir norman's one well norman but sir norman now he uh obviously had two goes of being elected and then came back for a of what you say was you know going to be his last go and interested to say right you know ed help me get elected where do you where do you even start i know you've written a book about this so perhaps i should read your book um but uh, you know where, where yeah, do you, you yeah, walk in and say, i'm going to um I, i'm i'm going to get you elected how, how did you even start so so we'd um i mean first of all i mean the main reason norman got elected by far was norman uh, you know his personality, his immense amount of hard work, um, and his real um, skill. Um, he's just got a very strong, innate empathy with people. You know, his starting point is always, "What is it that you need that I can do something to help with?" Uh, um, and you know, and I mean that shows as well throughout his. For anyone who knows anything. about about him for his work both in parliament and afterwards as well where he's made sort of campaigning on mental health issues a real big part of his life and so you know uh, he he may well have i don't want to kind of over egg the pudding he may well have um uh got elected in 2001 without me um uh we'd um we'd known each other for a long time he was actually my um local councillor um when i was a student in in norwich in 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 the 1980s and he kind of knocked on my door one more morning and um probably got me out of bed and um asked me to deliver some leaflets for him and you know he'd um 
So we'd known each other for a long time. I, I mean, our kids had kind of grown up together as well. And his wife and Lisa, my first wife, were both themselves um, counsellors together. Young women on Norfolk County Council that at the time was full of, you know, 60-year-old men, which was quite um, quite a culture shock for the organisation, I think. Um, so we'd, we'd known each other for a long time, been very close for a long time. And so it was kind of, it was it was just a kind of, uh, a thing that, that I'd come back at that at that point and was looking for something and um, it's funny you ask about um, where do you start um, I know exactly why I started doing it was because it was 2000 the Olympics were on the summer of 2000 and I I went along to the local committee you know this little party committee and I'd drawn this picture with with the five Olympic rings on um, and I and I'd in each ring, I'd put one thing that I was going to do, um, and and I said to them, you know, this th this is this is what I'm going to do for you over the next year. Um, I um, can't actually remember what any of the five things were in each in each of the in each of the rings. The what, but the point that I was actually trying to make to them was that the one thing that wasn't in any of the rings uh, was raising the money to pay for it all. So. <laughs> so, so it was kind of like this is what I'm going to do you guys have to figure out how you're going to raise the money to pay for it um, and uh, so and, and it was I mean the, the, there was because as I say Norman had been uh, he started in, uh, sort of eight years before and had built it up and got very close um, to winning the previous election um, he had an and, and he's very good as well um, he had an established team of volunteers um, and um, that so really my job was it was kind of producing the material and managing the logistics um, of literally how you stuff bits of paper through people's doors but it was really it was just saying to this team of volunteers you know this is what we're going to do marshalling them and um, and um, uh, bringing them together. I vividly remember one time that someone had volunteered to, um, I don't know, stuff things in envelopes for us or something, somewhere out in the wilds of, of North Norfolk. And because this was before the days of sat-navs, um, I spent a couple of hours driving around Norfolk trying to find this person's house um, uh, with these envelopes and leaflets in my, in my car. And eventually just had to give up um i don't think we had a telephone number for them um had to give up go back to the office and, and literally write them a letter saying i'm really sorry i couldn't find your house <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it sound like it was the kind of late 19th century but that was kind of um, you know that was that was kind of how it was and and in a funny way when i went back to work for norman in 2012 so um you know 11 12 years later um it was kind of the same job was was you had this kind of structure there uh, and what you had was a group of big group of volunteers and and I saw that my job really was just to kind of motivate them was to because they'd at that point 2012 the Lib Dems had been in uh, coalition for a couple of years been in government and uh, morale was really low uh, and because they'd had two years of being sort of battered around the head with bad you know bad headlines and stuff like that um, and I just said, okay, well, the, the, the obvious thing, the, the obvious place to start is we need to remind everybody, volunteers and voters, 
about the amazing work that Norman does as their MP. We just need to start talking about the good stuff again. And um, so that's what we did. That's where we that's where we kind of started from. Uh, and it all just kind of built up from there, really. So then you went on to uh, being elected as a councillor yourself. So, um, and you described yourself as not, you described yourself not as a cutlass waving alpha male. Um, yet, how does that um, sort of work with the cut and thrust of politics, even on a local level? I, I do you know what? In, on a local level, I think it works um, particularly well. Uh, so you have um, this. This kind of there's kind of I suppose three bits to the because in politics there has to be three. Whatever it is, it has to be divided into three um, uh, to the job. There's there's the kind of there's the there's the big policy stuff which you rarely get the chance to influence. But but you but you can um, sometimes. Um, there's the stuff that the the council in this particular case, but I mean it could be any level, it could be parliament really. Um, the stuff that they do uh, for people, the services that they deliver, how those services are delivered, how you divide up the budget, and all of that kind of stuff, which is really the kind of the the sort of the the, the meat of, of of what what you do. And then there's the engagement with the community. And being the voice of that community that you represent. I mean, in my case, it's a collection of twelve villages along the North Norfolk coast, and um, you know, they're a long way from County Hall, both you know, politically and geographically, really. Um, and it's my job to try my best to make sure that their concerns are heard within County Hall, um, and with. You know, in that part of the job, I spent a lot of time going to parish council meetings. I spent a lot of time talking to people in those villages and listening to, to the issues that they've got and trying to understand what those concerns are and, you know, um, translate those into, if you like, county hall speak to, to be able to get a change done if, 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 it's, if it's needed. Very often, uh, they're very slow and... Um, uh, quite small changes, but also sometimes, you know, life-changing ones. But if, if we're talking about the way that care is being delivered to someone uh, or someone's parent and you can intervene to, to get that improved, then that really does make a big difference. And, and those are, you know, that is kind of soft skills. That's not shouting and, um, as you say, waving a cutlass. But then even even at Candy Hall, so, so one of the things, obviously, when you get to that level, it's um it's it's uh run on party lines so uh for me i sit now as a as an independent councillor um the way that i can make changes at county hall again uh, you know you, you kind of i have to be realistic about the, the the extent of the changes that i can make but the way that i can do that is by interacting with them in a kind of civilized and human way you know I, I could choose and you know I guess many politicians do quite legitimately um, to take their role as being to attack and to criticize uh, in the hope that what that leads to is a 
change next time so that they get into power. Um, as an independent, that's never going to happen anyway, but it's also just not part of my personality. It's not my makeup to, to kind of, that's not the way that I want to kind of approach the job. So it's very much about negotiating and talking and persuading and learning and listening as well, you know, to sort of understand what both sides of the um, argument are so that you can kind of nudge changes where you can so that's 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 kind of that's kind of where it is is that why you decided to become independent rather than being part of either lib dems or or any party is that what was that the motivation or yeah i mean i'm 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 still you know i uh i mean instinctively um you know a moderate uh and believe in that as an approach to politics as but you know sort of finding the center ground is very much my instinct um and the the, the reasons why i left the Lib Dems, i mean you know i gosh i joined the liberal party when i was 16 so it's, it's kind of a lifetime commitment a big big thing to to leave the party um and i decided to leave because i was just so disappointed by the way that they had approached the 2019 um general election um which obviously the election itself was so focused on brexit but really i mean to to me it wasn't so much about brexit it was more the fact that i was just so disappointed that that you know we'd had a referendum where people had said what what they wanted to happen and whether you agreed with it or not i just kind of felt that it was the job of politics and politicians to as best as possible make that happen and i just got more and more frustrated with uh, with the the people uh, who were being really kind of militant in trying to stop that from happening it just seemed to me really profoundly kind of undemocratic and um so it yeah so i i just felt that they were kind of leaving a place where they were kind of moderate and sensible and kind of in the middle and i mean you know and i'm one of i i, I was you know, I was I was a I was a big fan of um, of of what the party was trying to do in the coalition. I I got to the point where I knew quite a lot of the people, not just Norman, but you know people like Chris Hume, Nick Clegg actually as as, as well. Reasonably, I used to work for him. Um, um, Lynn Featherstone, who did stuff um, uh, around, say, for example, female genital mutilation. Um, people who made big changes to the way that the country was run by being in power um, and um, so I'd sort of gone through that whole kind of coalition period thinking you know it, I, I've been delivering leaflets for these people for 40 years and we've never been anywhere near um, getting into power I, I, I'm, I'm going you know this is a good thing it's kind of like I, I think I think the um, the general election was not long after um, Norwich City got promoted into the Premier League, and it was like I can't believe that after two years, you know, after supporting Norwich City and the Liberals for for for, for decades, <laughs> they both started winning things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, you know, so I'd gone through that period of, of of sort of being a defender of of the coalition, and I just felt frustrated that that, that the party hadn't really kind of found a path that i could support after that so i kind of drifted away from it and um yeah and i and i pretty much decided i was going to not stand for re-election in 2021 when the ele- when the elections came around again um but i just sat there and i thought well 
actually, I really enjoy this. I, you know, I feel like it's a thing that I'm good at. Um, I'm making a contribution that fits with my view of the world to be trying to do things for other people. So I thought, well, why shouldn't I stand again? You know, I'll leave it up to the voters to decide whether or not I get re-elected. Um, and, um, you know, they can kind of judge. Um, so I did um, and was fortunate enough to to win. Um, and, you know, and then it's been the two years since the election have been quite a slog because when you're on your own and, you know, there's one party in power with, you know, with a fairly comfortable majority, getting things done, getting changes made is, 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 is not easy. Um, but um, I should say, when I say I'm on my own, um, I don't want my colleague Jim to, to get upset by that. We, we as, 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 as independents, um, we have a group of two uh, at County Hall. So there's myself and Jim, who is just brilliant over in Kings Limway. Um, and um, so I'm the leader and he's the deputy leader <laughs> of, our, of, our, of our independent party um, at County Hall, So, um, which I think we both find completely ridiculous. But um, uh, that's how the how the system works. But uh, yeah, so I'm not completely alone. And we do work together really well on, on lots of issues. Um, and he's... Um, the, the independent group, um, he's over in West Norfolk and, and they've just taken over running the, the borough council. So he's got some real power. He's doing lots of good stuff over there. But um, but yeah, so it was just that 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 thing of, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for other people to judge whether or not I'm doing a decent job uh, because I'm enjoying it and I think I can make a difference. But as I say, it's been harder over the last two years because you are kind of like kind of battering against a a door that's usually fairly firmly closed but, uh, so um you know, the people that you obviously represent what what are they asking you to to do for them at the moment i mean most of so the county council does a, obviously runs a, a certain set of things most of the stuff that people come to me about relates to roads potholes speeding all of that kind of stuff, which sounds really mundane, but obviously makes a really big difference. And especially when you're up on the coast, because, um, you know, uh, with more and more people going to the coast as day trips and what have you, um, roads and, 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 and traffic is becoming a big problem. Um, the So so on that kind of day to day basis, those are the kind of things that I um, I end up sort of, you know, asking questions about and trying to get changes made on. The two really big things that the county council has responsibility for are um, social care, so care for either for older people or for people with um, adults with with long term conditions. Um, and there's a there's a huge challenge there for um, any council actually. Uh, in being able to meet the demand for those services with the money that they've got. And so you often find, I often find as a counsellor that I will have uh, someone come to me and say, you know, my dad is really struggling to get the support he needs and I can help try and help with that. And quite often just contacting the, the service and say, can you look at this? Can you review it and make sure it's all being done properly? Actually, that does kind of nudge things along. 
you shouldn't really need to get your counsellor involved to get the, the care that you're supposed to be getting, but it does does kind of help because it means that someone else goes away and, 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 and reviews kind of what's being done. Um, the other area which has been, I guess, my real, the focus of my interest and my passion, I suppose, over the years has become that, um, has been services for children. Um, you know, back in the day when... Um, well, actually, when my first wife was on the county council, you know, the the, the county council had a much bigger role in education. Um, they don't have that so much directly anymore because schools are schools essentially run themselves. Um, but there's still a lot of work that councils do in relation to children in care, obviously, support for those who need it through what we would traditionally think of as the kind of social work system as well. Um, big focus on, um, and a big spend on um, children, supporting children with disabilities and additional needs. So that's a, a big part of, of, of what the County Council does. And a smaller part in terms of, you know, ensuring that, uh, the school system is kind of working properly. So that's often around where buildings are and where, you know, who's doing what, where and things like that. So there's, uh, so there is that whole kind of network of stuff around support for children is a big part of what council does and has been where I have chosen to kind of focus most of my effort um, over, over the years. Um, well, we, we share a passion for politics and also for, uh, services for children with disability and additional needs as um you know my both my children are uh, you know have additional needs and are uh, working their way through the through the system to uh, to access support so um i guess that's you know obviously you've focused on that area with children with disabilities and additional needs so what was it that particularly drew you to to getting involved in that area um, it's a really good question because I'm not sure that I can kind of pick one thing. I don't really have any direct kind of personal family experience, lived experience or whatever of, 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 of those things. Um, there was a point in my job history where I was working for um, Leonard Cheshire, Leonard Cheshire Disability, um, supporting people who were disabled to campaign on issues that affected them in their communities. And that was the kind of the first engagement for it. And then later I went to work for a little charity in uh, Norfolk called Musical Keys that does brilliant work around providing music and creative activities for actually people of all ages with disabilities and additional needs. And those two things um, sort of strengthened my interest in that area. But I, th I think if I was gonna pick one thing it's it's broader than just the SEND, the additional needs area. It's about education and uh, probably takes us right back to the beginning to, you know, those thoughts uh, uh, maybe when I'm uh, turning 30, all, all of that kind of stuff where I'm thinking about life and who I am and what I am and why I am. The one thing that I know very clearly has transformed my life is the educational opportunities that I had 
I'm the the first person in my family to have gone to university. Um, I went to, as I said, I went to a tiny village school, so small, um, in fact, that it closed the year after I, I left, um, but then went to a, um, comp the comprehensive school in the local town, you know, um, I'm told, I don't remember this, I'm told that I took the, the 11 plus and, and, and did pass it, I, I don't remember this at all, but um, so I might have got into a grammar school, I don't know, but, you know, I had a, my parents were well dad you know dad was obviously retired mum was kind of scraping a living out of working on farms and things like that you know there was there was not a lot of money around there were there were I, I didn't have any of the the kind of opportunities that go with with that that kind of network and the chance to go <clears throat> to university completely transformed my life from what it might have been and it was the the kind of the, the the passion, if you like, when I when I said about politics not being my politics not being driven by passion, but by driven, being driven by a choice between that and train spotting. Actually, the passion that has arrived is is that sense of wanting people to have the opportunities that come with education and a sense that it's unfair for people with who are accidentally born into privilege to have bigger opportunities in that area than others so it's it's that that it starts and if you then take it into the SEND the additional needs thing um it's a kind of similar thing you know that it just seems to me to be kind of obvious even if you have a disability or some other form of additional need, that you should still have the same opportunity through the education system to make of your life what you can make of it. And and I, for a long time, I think the system wasn't kind of coping with that at all, wasn't doing that. Um, and it's only through the efforts of people really campaigning on it really hard that, that that I think has sort of started to begin to change. And talk about that <clears throat> beginning to change. So big part of the audience of this podcast is the SN, SEND community, given uh, that that's a sort of a circle I, I operate in. Um, and um, to be honest, Ed, the, the, the opinion of the system is fairly low. Uh, and the support that people get from Norfolk County Council around education and the support. Now, um, we probably don't see all the work that goes into into trying to change that. So, I guess this is an opportunity just to ask, you know, what what is going on at a at a local or a county level to try and, you know, we we know we know the budgets are challenged. You know, we, everybody understands that, um, but. You know what's what's currently high up on the agenda to try and um, improve the system and and the support for children with additional needs in Norfolk. So, uh, how long have you got? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, absolutely uh, agree that um, the system isn't working 
uh, right. Uh, if I, um, I mean, if I, if I sort of take you back to, I'm going to preface this by saying that obviously what I'll, what I'll describe is what the county council is doing, um, and uh, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with everything that the county council is doing. So, uh, yeah. so, but but it, it, I think it's useful to kind of look at this, the kind of story. Um, one part of the story, obviously, is is the changes that came in in 2014 with the establishment of the um, EHCPs and the way that the system was 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 was, was changed through that and the entitlements that people have as a result of that. Um, within the county council, if you go back, um, you have a situation, when was it, nearly 10 years ago, I suppose now, where they had um, a very bad um, Ofsted inspection result um, of their care services for children. Now, why is that relevant? That's relevant because what then followed on from that is a whole series of changes of leadership within the Children's Services Department at, at, at County Hall, um, which kind of came to an end in what must have been 2017 when the current director was uh, came into post. Um, and throughout that period, and then for a number of years since, you, it's really clear that their main focus has been fixing the care system so you know what what in in the old days are you know we would have called children's homes but obviously it goes much more <laughs> broad and wide than that now but that side of the children's services um and one of the criticisms that i've made um of the county council's approach over that period is that i think they put so much effort leadership time and resource into fixing that problem um, that the SEND problem, the, the problems just kind of backed up. They weren't kind of focused in the same way on those issues. Now, I'm sure if I said that to Sarah, the, the director of um, Children's Services, if I said that to her face, she would probably agree, but she would also probably say it was entirely justified because they needed to sort that problem out first. There's now, I think it's pretty clear, a change in their approach so that they have switched to focusing on SEND um, and the way that I think actually following another um, fairly negative Ofsted CQC inspection of, of the SEND provision um, a couple of years ago um, the so they've they've putting in place a strategy now which um, which which I think they are hoping will um, make things better there are three everything in politics has to be three um, there are there are three, <laughs> there are three things I think which um, which which they're focused that they're focusing on one uh, was getting on top of uh, the backlog of um, processing EHCPs. Now, we might come back to that in terms of what that all means, but but very clearly, they were miles away from meeting their legal obligations, actually, in terms of processing those, those EHCPs and getting support put in place for the children and families. Um, the other one was around 
um, communication. Uh, and that was one that I was particularly interested in because I could see it. I could see that they were, and you know, people, I'm sure families in your network were, were feeling it as well, experiencing it, could really see that they were not communicating in the right way with people. Um, there was a real tendency to, for the sort of line, if you like, from County Hall to be, um, everything's great, and not only is it great today, tomorrow it's going to be even better. When people's lived experience was a million miles away from that, and it was so obvious that that was kind of creating more resentment and anger amongst parents and families <laughs> than than even the entirely justified amount that was there anyway because of, because of they weren't getting the services. Um, so there was a big job to be done uh, around the communication side of things, and I think they've kind of started they've 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 recognized i mean Austin told them anyway but um they i think they are improving um the way that they that they do that um and then the third thing was is resources money and what they are trying to do over the course of the next 6 or 7 years um, with quite a big chunk of money coming in from the government to support it is two things. Um, create a lot more spaces that are specialist provision, either through new special schools or through what's called um, specialist resource spaces, SRBs, which are kind of almost like mini special schools within, um, within mainstream schools. And moving alongside that, moving away from from as far as they can from the quite expensive um, places that they are currently having to pay for in the independent school, the independent SEND school sector. So sort of shifting um, resources over that way. So I think and I hope I'm, I'm instinctively in, interested. I'd be interested to know what your community of, of listeners feels about this, but I'm, I'm instinctively nervous about special schools as a thing um, because, you know, one of the things um, that I came into this world with, again, admitting that I don't have kind of direct lived experience, is I am instinctively uncomfortable about the idea of putting kids in a building with a sign on the outside saying, you know, special needs kids um, because that potentially shapes the rest of their lives in not necessarily positive ways, albeit that that school may be better equipped to deal with their needs in the moment. I'm just nervous about that as a system. And I've seen um, situations where I think, many situations actually, where I think, do you know what? The mainstream schooling system really ought to be able to cope with the needs of that child so that they get all of the chances and opportunities that the kids in the mainstream system do as they go through their life now you know it doesn't it, that, that that's 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 a very simplified way of looking at it but that's you know kind of broadly where i come at it from the 
the tricky challenge that um, the council has um, is that it's kind of so burnt so many bridges. There's so little trust um, uh, within the system that they've got a real job to do to kind of re rebuild it. And I think in part, um, it will take a long time for that to come back. And if I, um, I've been talking about that so long, I've, I've kind of forgotten what your original question was, but the, um, if I could just pick up one thing alongside that, um, there's something else happening as well, which is that um, we are the system, people in general, whatever, are more aware now and increasingly aware of neurodiversity as an issue than, than it was we were uh, even a few years ago. And I think that's a good thing. Undeniably, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, that we're more aware of that and what that means in terms of education or, or, or life chances or whatever. Um, but I went to last year, I went to uh, maybe earlier this year, not, not that long ago, went to there's an organization called Carer's Voice in, in Norfolk, which Family Voice rather, which um, organizes a conference every year in, in, in Norwich. And I went to the session at that conference, which was delivered by the NHS team, which is responsible for doing the neurodiversity diagnosis within the NHS. And uh, it was packed. It was literally standing room only. And there were a lot of frustrated parents in there. Um, I think the people um, who are running that service really care um, and really want to make it work. Um, the Let's be honest, the NHS has got more money <laughs> than any other bit of government, uh, but it's obviously been stretched in all sorts of different ways. Um, and so the bit that's kind of in a way that, could, that that kind of opened my eyes to, which is kind of, I think is new-ish, is the role of the NHS in all of this. Um, that I sense maybe that the focus, and perhaps parents have kind of given up on the county council <laughs> and, and said, okay, I think uh, my child has um, ADHD or autism spectrum condition of some sort. I need a diagnosis from the NHS to support this. As, 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 as Polly said in her broadcast to you a few weeks ago, um, I need the bit of paper to back me up and I think that's uh, an interesting development in terms of players coming seen in a way that they weren't before. Yeah, I think um, I, I think um, two two things that you really hit the nail on is is the communication. You know, and this is my opinion. Is um, you know, I think that that. Uh, it's hopefully improving um, between 
you know, their services. And I think the area obviously needs to improve is advice around the system. You know, we, we particularly, you know, and I know I can only speak for, for my family. Um, we had to become full-time researchers into the system yeah. to find out exactly how to navigate it. Um, and also the other thing is, you know, is around trust, you know, I think it's, um, you know, and that's why I wanted to ask you about sort of the things that the local authority were doing, because, you know, we see, you know, I see lots of, um, people talking about, and, um, documents published around, uh, improving the standard offer support for SEN children within the county, um, which is great, you know, like who, who wouldn't want that. Um, but I think you're right that the trust needs to be built up that that won't get taken away or will actually be delivered on a consistent basis. And I think if you combine the communication with the trust, then I think you know, we, we might get somewhere um, and stop ending up in, you know, people with going to mediation and into tribunals and, yeah. and everything else, because they feel like they're seeing those services delivered within a core offer that they don't, you know, have to go to, a send tribunal to get an EHCP to make the local authority have a legal obligation to deliver those services. They're just part of what the local authority does within the education system. And I think if we can get somewhere near to that point, and I see the direction of travel and that's good. Um, perhaps I'm a skeptic, but uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let, let's see if it delivers what it promises. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right to be skeptical. I think, um, everybody sh should be um, skeptical. The other thing, which of course is happening, is that we, the, the government, has looked at this and, and finally started to reach some conclusions about what it should do. Um, I, I, I mean, the, the changes that they've proposed, um, I'm not surprised that I looked at them and thought, well, they're a bit kind of cautious. Um, but they are a bit cautious, you know. That they they haven't looked at the system and said, that's kind of scrap some of this and start again with something completely different, which I think they could have done if they'd been a bit more ambitious. They've kind of tweaked around the edges. And and what a lot of the focus of, of the changes that they've proposed, I think, are around uh, kind of national standards and putting a kind of national system in place. Um, that could be a good thing, um, but only if... The local authorities then actually meet those <laughs> standards because you know because one of the big problems the point where trust is lost exactly as you've just pointed to is if the council isn't processing hcps in time and appears to be turning them down almost deliberately so that they can you know get rid of a few so that the, and then live with losing 90 odd percent of the tribunal cases if that, if the perception or the reality of the of the change system is is the same that that you know that you put in in a set of national standards and then the council not not just Norfolk but any council says, okay, well we're gonna you know clearly we can't meet these targets so we're going to try our best, then that's going to that's going to be a real problem because. If every time you don't meet one of those standards, that's a family, that's a child who is not getting um, the the support that um, they need. So that's all only going to kind of um, undermine things. 
there's no doubt that the starting point really needed to be committing some extra money to it. Um, and I mean, they could have done something really radical. I mean, I, you know, the, the, when I sort of sit and sit back and I think about it and I think, well, actually, do you know what? So I don't know. I, th I think it's, is it two thirds or three quarters of the, of the SEND money goes into the kind of like high needs spot rather than to specific individual uh, being attached to an EHCP. Um, if you made that a meaningful amount of money, but actually gave the kids effectively the money <laughs> mm. um, and said, uh, there you go, families, that's your budget. You decide where in the system you want to spend it. Um, then I think fairly quickly you would see the system starting to transform. Actually, as it kind of did with going back to my work with uh, with musical keys, as it did, for example, with the short breaks money, where where they kind of did that instead of having block purchases of services, they they you ended up with personal budgets. If you had personal budgets for SEND education and those budgets were meaningful, then you know. I think pretty quickly the schools would start to say, oh, do you know what? We kind of need to transform the way we do things so so that because we're missing out on this whole bunch of people that, that ought to be coming to our school. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, say it's, it's easy to say because, I mean, because you could say, well, okay, well, as things are at the moment, a lot of schools would say, oh, thank God for that. We don't have to, if they want to go somewhere else, that we don't have to... <laughs> I had that conversation with the school this yeah. week, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it would actually have to be a meaningful amount of money to to make that happen. But I just think, you know, that that's that's a direction they could have have, have kind of looked at. Uh, but obviously, they weren't quite ready to do that kind of transformation. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's difficult. And um, you know, and if you look back, as I say, to twenty fourteen, to the changes that were introduced then. You're only really ten years later. You're only really going to be able to start seeing the impact that that has, the system has on people's lives from from this point onwards. Because if I go back to my, as I say, to my own story, my own sort of innate sort of belief in the transformational power of education, then you you don't see the results of that transformation until you know, you make your way through your life as a uh, um, as an adult. Actually, that's not true because obviously there's, there's a an enormous amount of value and validity in what what a child experiences in their own life as a child. But um, and it's you know and it's and it's rubbish if their life is made rubbish by being in the wrong environment or not supported in the right way. Um, but in terms of the long term impact of a of a of a policy, then you know you. It takes a long time for it to feed through. And um, along a similar theme, you were recently head of children and family services at NANSA. So um, talk to me about NANSA and the, the work that they do. Yeah, uh, so so NANSA, I mean, it's been around a long time in um, uh, in Norfolk. They were set up in the 1950s as a kind of fairly traditional looking at the time uh, set of services for um, disabled adults. Um, and uh they now provide support for adults they do some great work 
um, particularly through their retail arm in supporting people through training um, opportunities and uh, also provide services for uh, children, young people and families alongside that. Um, so one of the great things they do, for example, is, is, um, is providing um, sleep advice, uh, which is a huge uh, thing and that service is commissioned uh, from the NHS and or by the NHS and um, so there's there's kind of those family support elements to it as well as services provided directly to children and I was I was working for them as um, uh, as head of children's uh, and families services um, following their merger with another charity called Sensational Families which um, uh, was a small organisation was focused on peer-to-peer um, -peer support as, as we like to call it in the sector but basically families supporting each other um, with advice and um, support and that's what that's what kind of that merger kind of created the resources for that for that role okay. um, so ed we've come on to uh, the quick fire round questions so if you could change one thing about the world what would it be <laughs> well, do you know? I'm going to stick with this. So I said when when you when you ping me the email that that my answer to this was going to be putting moving pavements everywhere, and and I I'd spoken to someone about that, and they just said that don't don't be ridiculous. You can't say that. And then, <laughs> but I'm going to stick with it anyway. And the the reason is I've always thought this about like you know, it's not about um making it easier for lazy people to get around by putting moving payments in if you put moving payments in everywhere people will say oh i could get over there in five minutes by walking when i would previously needed to get in the car and drive and so you actually increase the opportunities for people to to, to move about in, a, in, a, in an active way and it's um the reason you know fortunately for the world i'm never going to be prime minister so i'm never going to get the chance to put moving pavements everywhere around Britain. But the point is, which I wish politics in particular would learn, is the value of looking at things from a different angle. Uh, uh, we spend a lot of time and a huge amount of money fixing problems, the outcomes of problems. We, we deal with the consequences of issues all of the time. And we rarely sit back and say, what are the things that are causing this to happen that might be completely different from the issue itself? If we fix those, they would make that problem go away. So you wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of it. Um, and I just, you know, that, that would be my thing. So, you know, so, so, so the bigger aspiration, which is, a lot harder to put into a, a, sh a short form of words is, is just making politicians think about the, the root causes of things rather than um, uh, rather than dealing with the consequences. Okay. Um, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to change their direction but didn't know where to start? So it's another. So there's another. I've got a glib aphorism for every single day of the week. Uh, so the the uh, I'm always. Uh, fond of saying that the one piece of advice that I gave to my children was never to listen to anyone else's advice um, and uh, the point again there really is I think you've got to follow you've got to be true to yourself you've got to follow 
what you think is right. And if I look back, you know, I mean, you've been very kind to me today. You've you've made my um, life and career history sound like it, it kind of had had a sort of sense of structure and purpose to it and meaning all the way through it. Actually, it's felt like a complete chaos all the way through. And um, I think alongside being true to yourself and making choices that feel right for you, the key thing is you also have to recognize that those will have consequences for others. Because many of the choices that I've made through my life have had consequences for others, those, those closest to me, those I love most, that have not been good. And I see a lot of examples of people who choose the cautious option because they get stuck and in, into that and don't want to kind of um, take risks or take risk for others. And I see others who appear to be oblivious to the impact of their choices and behaviours on other people. Um, and uh, I think there's actually... Um, there's, there's there's a different way there's there's a yes i'm going to do the risky thing but i'm going to accept the consequences of that for myself and and take responsibility for that and say well if i get it wrong i'll own up to it and i will try and minimize the 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 the, the, the consequences for others so yeah so if you're going to make a change do it as far as possible with your eyes open realize that you can't foresee all of the circumstances all of the the, the consequences rather and uh try and be as kind as you can to other people along the way and what's going to be your next big change <laughs> uh, well i'm about to change jobs so that's that's <laughs> um, that's got to be the um uh, the, the, the the big thing i'm going to work for uh we're running a project called championing social care which is which is quite exciting which kind of does what it says on the tin um i know i said that uh uh, when you asked me that in email, I said, well, the other thing that, that's obviously happening is I'm getting older, but I, I just feel that if, we, if I go down that road again, it just feels like, oh, God, Ed's having yet another existential crisis. We don't want to spend another 40 minutes talking about that. But um, that the, the job thing, yeah, is, 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 is the next big change, which I'm really looking forward to, actually. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to, um, to work with some fantastic people um, and um, do something really interesting around promoting the good work that the care system does um in this uh, in this country well we uh we, we'll follow uh how that's going maybe we'll come and uh, speak to you again once you've uh once you've been established for a little while um and lastly if you were to recommend someone for me to speak to on uh, know your shift who who would that be oh mind? wow i didn't know you were going to ask me that uh, <laughs> <laughs> um well do you know what? Uh, the one I would most like to hear from would be my daughter, uh, who um, has uh, is going to be starting in six weeks' time because they've just started the summer holidays. Is going to be going back to um, uh, school um, as a head teacher, um, which I think is quite a thing for a for a thirty four year old. Um, and we've so. Um, I split up from her mum when she was 13 or so, which is a pretty difficult age for her, obviously. I mean, it's never, never easy, whatever age you are, but that's a particularly difficult age, I, I think, you know, a 13-year-old girl. Um, 
I've dragged her, we had dragged her out to Eastern Europe to live through her schooling years. Um, and, you know, there have been times where uh, we've got brilliant relationship, fantastic relationship. Um, uh, love spending time with her and her family. But there have been times where we've we've been fairly quiet with each other. And I would love to hear her story about her path. I haven't asked her about it because I didn't know you were going to ask me. Um, so I might see if I can ask her permission to uh, to um, for you to speak to her because I think that would be um, really interesting to see the challenges that she feels she has um, dealt with over her life to get to the most amazing point in her career and family life as well where she's doing such a brilliant job of being a mum. We can get a different... Uh different voice on education uh yeah we have many really interesting conversations about it as well so and she's taught me a lot too um i just want to say thanks for joining me today ed um i've really enjoyed the conversation i could talk to you about politics and um issues around send uh all afternoon i think um i hope the people of that you represent as a councillor have learned something about you as well um if they didn't know already not too um, much hopefully <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah just want to say thanks very much and um good luck with good luck with the new role uh thank you very much and it's been an absolute pleasure